Well, if you want to learn something new, one of the most uh, helpful things you can do is get together with other learners um, of that new thing, other learners like yourself. It's why we have mother's groups where mums of newborns can get together to commiserate and collaborate, share war stories about sleepless nights and and stubborn feeders uh, and share wisdom about what's working for me at the moment. Uh, It's why we have industry conferences. Whatever industry you might be in, you might have had industry conferences. A couple of years back, a friend of mine invited me along to the Agile Australia conference where we heard all the latest thinking uh, about how to innovate in business. People got together to pull um, ideas, what was working well and what was working badly. Now, of course, in churches, this idea of getting together with other learners is one of the essential principles that we work with as well for our ministries. Did you know that the word disciple uh, really is just the word learner? When that word is translated into English um, from the original Greek, it's just really the word learner. All Christians are disciples. All Christians are learners if you're someone who trusts and follows Jesus. And so, what do learners do? We get together with other learners to share and to encourage and so on. We do it at church each week and we do it in our small groups as we open the Bible together and discuss it and pray together and seek to live our lives in light of what the Bible has to say to us. But as essential as this principle is of getting together with other learners, in our churches, it can also come with a significant risk. Have you ever thought about how false, unbiblical, off-the-mark kind of teaching spreads in our church. Have you ever given that much thought? Well, let me tell you how false teaching doesn't spread in churches. One Sunday afternoon, a man with a big cardboard sign turns up here to church and he's hand-painted on the sign in big red capital letters, None of you are saved. The institutional church is of the devil. Then, after turning up with his big sign, he he walks up to the pulpit after the Bible readings and, and he says, you've got it all wrong. None of you are saved. God has spoken to me and you need to listen. And then he goes on about how you need to listen to your inner divine voice. You need to stop eating sugar and dairy. And you need to take all your money out of the big commercial banks I put it in the special bank that he has established. And you sit there and you listen and you decide, well, that's me done with this old Anglican church of Springwood then. I'm going to follow that guy from now on. That's not how false teaching spreads, is it? Wolves don't turn up looking like wolves. And speaking like wolves. That's why Jesus gave us that phrase about wolves wearing sheep's clothing. And that's why that principle of learning with other learners, why it is so essential, we really can't do without it, it's why that principle, as well as being so essential, is also so risky. You're chatting after church. 
or at small group. And you share how, well, I've been feeling a little bit spiritually dry recently. And then someone says to you, well, have you heard about, insert idea or practice or experience here? I've really found it quite helpful. Now, they're a long-standing church member. You respect their opinions and their intelligence. And you think, perhaps this is what I need then to break out of this spiritual dryness that I've been feeling. Over time, too, you find others here at church who are into this teaching, too. And the thrill of learning something new is intoxicating. You begin to go deeper. There's a conference you go to. There are articles you devour. There's a whole online community devoted to this. And soon resentment starts to build against your church. How could they have hidden this from me all these years? And a year or so after that first conversation, you're gone. You're gone from church altogether. See, false teaching spreads subtly. People who seem trustworthy share something new and wise-sounding, something that holds the exciting prospect of liberating you from the funk that you've been in. And they genuinely believe in it too. There's there's no sign that they're uh, trying to manipulate you here. They believe in it. They're not like some shonky salesperson trying to sell you a lemon. But small step by small step, you eventually end up miles away. From biblical truth. Now, why am I saying all this? Well, because this was precisely the situation that the church at Colossae, the ancient town of Colossae, found themselves in back when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Tim said in his introduction this afternoon that this letter is a letter we've been working through this term here at Anglican Church of Springwood. Somewhere some of you have kind of dropped in here. Uh, a little bit into chapter 2, four weeks uh, into the series. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae and that's the situation that they've been dealing with. People who call themselves Christians, right? they looked respectable and trustworthy and they had joined this church there at Colossae and they had started to spread some new ideas about how to find fullness in faith. And so in our passage today, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6, it would be good to have that open. In our passage today, and also in our passage uh, next week, Paul gives a series of directives to the church at Colossae for what to do about false teaching like this. And these are directives that still hold true in our lives today. Now today we're going to look at three of those directives, and they're there on your outlines as you came in. You would have been given... Um, a weekly news sheet, and there's an insert in there with an outline on it. And very, very helpfully, the three directives Paul gives are all W's. Walk, watch, and remember. (laughs) That's the best I could do. So firstly, walk. Or more particularly, walk on in Christ. Now, you might know that walking was one of the Apostle Paul's favourite metaphors for living as a Christian. Sometimes today you might still hear people talking about my Christian walk. Our NIV translations that we read from before, they haven't kept the metaphor, but it's there in verse 6. Have a look at what Paul writes. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
walk in him. As our pastor says here, continue to live your lives in him. Same meaning, just kind of losing the metaphor in our translations. Now, this verse is probably the most important verse in the whole letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Be a good one to memorize, I think, if you're, if, uh, you're into memorizing scripture, which I think is a great thing to be doing. It's a, it's a real hinge point in the whole letter. See, up till now, and this is what the first half of that verse is talking about, the Apostle Paul has been writing about how they have received Christ as Lord, describing what he gives thanks to God for and prays for them, describing Christ's supremacy, describing his own mission that they have been the beneficiaries of. So right up until now, he's been describing, describing, describing. But then, in the rest of the letter, after chapter 2, verse 6, he switches from description mode to command mode. Uh, for the grammar nerds uh, out there, um, he switches from the indicative mode to the imperative mode. He, he gives the first imperative verb of the letter here when he says, walk in him. It's the first command of the letter. Now, why is this important? Well, because when the Colossians first received this letter, they're uh, in the first century, they got this letter from the Apostle Paul and they're getting together and they read it together. One of the things that their ears would have been tuned into was what's the first imperative of the letter? What's the first command that Paul is going to give us? Because we know that his first command is going to be really, really important. That was how letters worked in the ancient world. And so here it is in our passage. Walk in him. Just as you have received Christ as Lord, walk in him. In other words, keep on going the same way that you have been going. The way you started, well, that's the same way that you're going to get to the finish line. Remember last week, those of you who were here among us last week, uh, we saw in chapter 1, verse 28, that the message proclaimed by a faithful leader is Christ. Paul writes in that verse, He is the one we proclaim. Well, it's Christ that they had originally received when uh, Paul first sent his emissary Epaphras to plant the church in Colossae 10 years before he wrote the letter. And it's Christ then, it's Christ they first received, and it's Christ then that they are to continue in if they are to grow as Christians. Now, my um, eldest two kids are both into riding scooters. And James, my six-year-old boy, he recently got himself um, a big kind of chunky scooter with these chunky uh, two wheels. It's a two-wheeler. It's kind of a Jeep of scooters, this big chunky thing that you can go off-road. And it's got a handbrake up here. This is levels above the scooter that he first began with. When he started learning to scoot, he was on a lightweight plastic three-wheeler, much more stable but much slower, and when you hit the grass, you just stop dead, pretty much. It was near impossible to push. Sometimes, as Christians, uh, we can have the idea that growing as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is a little bit like graduating from the three-wheeler scooter to the two-wheeler scooter. I first hear about Jesus, that He is Lord and Judge of all, but because He died for my sin, if I trust in Him then I won't have to face that judgment. And so I've trusted in him and I know God is my father and I have eternal life ahead of me. But then we treat Jesus like the, the three-wheeler scooter. Now, he was good for that initial season, 
But then we move on to bigger and better Christian things. And he gets discarded, chucked under the house and gathering dust. But Paul says, just as you have received him, so walk in him. The Christian life is not like learning how to ride a scooter, but like the growth of a flourishing tree. Continue rooted in him, Paul says in verse 2. Christ is like the rich nutrient soil that we are to grow down deeper into if we are to grow up as mature Christians. Or at the risk of mixing his metaphors, Paul also says that Christ is like the foundation of a building which our Christian lives are to be built upon. The point is, if you want to experience fullness of life, if you want to experience the full Christian life, you never move on from Christ. But you do move on in Christ. You never move on from him, but you do move on in him. Keep learning the faith as you were taught, Paul says. That faith which has Christ at the centre and the head of all things. The faith that's contained in these pages. So that's Paul's Paul's first directive about what to do in the face of false teaching. And the second one, which is also the second imperative verb of the letter, is watch. Have a look at what Paul writes in verse 8. He writes, see to it, as in keep watch. See to it that no one else takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, those of us who are Christians, we are naive, I think, if we expect that just by being the church and doing the things that churches do, we will be protected from false teaching. And so we need to actively keep watch. The sinfulness of our own hearts and the craftiness of the devil means that false teaching will always be inevitable, even in the healthiest of churches. And so our eyes and our ears need to be open so that we can recognise false teaching for what it is before it can spread. Now, just to be clear, I'm not, here, I'm not talking here about witch hunts or creating an atmosphere of paranoia And conspiracy theories. You know, we're often going to get things wrong. We're often going to get teaching wrong. But more often than than not, that's because uh, we're mistaken. That's why God gives us one another so that we can be helping and encouraging and correcting one another. But we do need to take care to ensure that the truths that we are teaching one another accord with the truths of Christ as revealed in the Bible. But in the end... Paul says in verse 8, the ideas and philosophies that we live by will either be according to the world or according to Christ. Now specifically, he does break down that teaching of the world into two different sources. But in the end, they're both teachings of the world. He breaks them down firstly into human tradition. 
And then there's what he calls the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Kind of a, a weird phrase. Um, quite literally, it translates the word um, that was used for the alphabet, kind of the letters of the alphabet. Um, but Paul used it a number of times in two of his letters to refer to the spiritual powers, right? the devil and other anti-God spiritual forces that there are in the world. But as I said before, in the end, these two sources, they provide, they, they provide one single stream of worldly anti-Christian teaching. Whatever ideas or philosophy someone teaches, if they don't accord with the truth of reality that's found in Christ, well, ultimately they are hollow. And if you attempt to depend on them for living, in the end you'll find yourself falling through them, like sitting down to take a rest on a hollow log. You fall through it. And so to avoid... Our time uh, to avoid in our time of spiritual dryness being taken captive to false teaching, we need to watch both for the sake of yourself and for the sake of others around you. If you're not sure about an idea you've heard, it's a good idea to explore with the person that you've heard it from where'd you get that idea from? Um, Explore together where in the Bible it came from because. Chances are it might not actually be biblical at all. And really, in the end, that's the test of whether something accords with Christ or not. Does the idea uh, come from the Bible? And if you're still not sure, well, bring it to uh, one of the ministers, one of the pastors here at church. The New Testament is very clear that part of the job of the pastor is to protect the flock by correcting false teaching. That's why you send us away to do four years of theological training so that we can come back as a resource um, to you. The third thing to do in the, false, uh, in the face of false teaching is to remember. Now, strictly speaking, um, Paul doesn't give us another command here in um, the final verses of our passage, verses 9 to 15. But what he does give us is a reminder of who Christ is and of what he has done for us. Which, as it turns out, is actually a far more effective counter to false teaching than simply keeping watch. For this is the real solution to our spiritual dryness. If I truly know what I have in Christ, I'm never going to need to look elsewhere, am I? And while we don't really have time to do justice to what Paul says here in detail, let me give you a three-point summary that will have to suffice. Firstly, remember that in Christ you already have fullness. That's from verses 9 and 10. You often hear people banding about the term self-fulfillment as being the highest good um, in our lives today. Be the best you can be by looking inside yourself at your desires and capacities To then achieve your potential, self-fulfillment. But the Bible says that we are made for God to be in relationship with Him. And so our potential is not fulfilled by looking inside ourselves, but by looking to Him. More specifically, it's by being united to Christ. Since Christ Himself is God. The fullness of the deity lives in him, Paul writes in verse 9. And he is the ruler over all human and spiritual powers, he says in verse 10. And so he is the only one 
in whom we can find fullness of life. Whatever anyone else might say, whether the teaching purports to be Christian or spiritual or neither of those things, Christ is the only place where we can finally be in relationship with God himself, the creator of the universe, just as we were originally meant to be. Secondly, remember that in Christ you have already overcome death. So the fullness we have in relationship with God, it's not just about fullness in this life, but fullness for eternity. In verses 11 and 12, Paul speaks of the self-ruled by the flesh as being put off and being buried and being raised. Now when he speaks about the flesh here, he's speaking about humankind in our sinfulness. And right since the beginning, God's punishment for sin has always been death. But in Christ, if you are someone who trusts Jesus in Christ, you have gone through death with him and you have been raised with him. And so that punishment of death no longer awaits you. Now this is uh, in verses 11 and 12, all explained uh, using the language of circumcision, which is probably not um, the choice of language that we would choose if we were um, explaining this. But it's likely that the false teachers there in the city of Colossae were suggesting circumcision was the path to spiritual fulfilment, or at least one of the paths to spiritual fulfilment. Paul speaks here about being circumcised by Christ, rather. That's the real kind of circumcision. Which, when you put it in context next to what he says about baptism in verse 12, it's pretty clear that it's just a reference to conversion. He's using circumcision by Christ as a metaphorical reference to conversion, to becoming a Christian. And so he's saying that it's from the moment you become a Christian, right, from the moment you first put your trust in Jesus, that that punishment of death no longer lies ahead. And thirdly, remember that in Christ you already have complete freedom. That's the message of verses 13 to 15. Because of the cross, if you trust Jesus, your slate is now already wiped clean. You are totally forgiven in God's sight. Paul, he uses the image of a handwritten note, a statement of how much we owe because of our sin. That note's been taken, he says, and it's been nailed up to the cross of Christ. Just as someone being crucified would often have their charge nailed up above them, so Jesus, next to Pontius Pilate's charge that he was the king of the Jews, had the record of all your sin and all my sin nailed up next to him. At the cross, if we've trusted Jesus, at the cross, our sin has been paid for. And the effect of that is that Satan, the accuser, no longer has any real weapons to use against us. He can no longer say to us, look at your wickedness and how much of a failure you are in God's eyes. You deserve to be condemned. He can no longer say that. Why? Because Christ has been condemned for us. And so in Christ, we are now completely free from Satan's rule. And the rule of the powers and authorities that are under his sway. 
which is an incredible helpful thing to remember uh, if the false teaching that you uh, might be attracted by is false teaching about victory over spiritual powers. Now, in each of these three things to remember, notice that they are all things that followers of Jesus already possess. You have been brought to fullness, Paul writes. You were raised. He has taken away the legal charge. And so if you trust Christ, these things are true for you now. Because they've happened in the past, they are true for you now. Now, while they are obviously not yet what they will be when Christ returns, we're not yet living the fullness of that life that will come when Christ returns and we are in heaven, they are true of you now. Notice also that it's in Christ that these things are possessed. Six times throughout our passage, in seven verses, Paul uses the phrase, in or with Christ, or in or with Him. And the way this phrase works, is like being strapped into a roller coaster. You know, with a roller coaster, you go there, you, you get into the seat, the bar comes down and straps you in, such that wherever the roller coaster goes, that's where you go. When the roller coaster lurches right, you lurch right. When the roller coaster drops, you drop. If you have trusted in Christ, wherever Christ has gone, you have gone. He's died and he's been buried. So you've died and you've been buried. He's been raised from the dead. And so you too have been raised from the dead to new life. All of which means, why would you look anywhere other than Christ for fullness, for life, for freedom? So remember what it is that you have. And so to conclude, when a friend suggests to you that Perhaps you're missing out on the fullness of the Christian life because you don't have, say, some supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Well, you can say to them, or you can say to yourself, no, I have Christ. I have all the fullness that God wants for me in Him. Or perhaps uh, when you're told that here at at Anglican Church of Springwood, at, at your church, you don't really have the fullness of the Christian life Because you don't have the fullness of community that the church is meant to be. Well, you can say to them, no, 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 I have Christ. I know that things now are not yet what they will be, but I have Christ. And so I have all the fullness of the things that God desires to give me. Now, when anyone suggests that there is something more to the Christian life that you are missing out on beyond Christ... This is the truth that you can tell yourself, that you can cling to. I have Christ. If you are a Christian, if you trust him for salvation, I have Christ. For if you do trust in him as your Lord and Saviour, you possess in him now all the fullness of all that it is to be a Christian. You don't need to go beyond him. You don't need to to go beyond him. You only need to go deeper into him to realise that fullness. Remember the plant, not the scooter. So keep walking in him, just as the Bible teaches you. Let me lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for all the fullness of life that you have given us in Christ. Please help us to keep walking in him, uh, just as you have enabled us. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.